Hello and welcome to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw which looks at the pivotal moments that have influenced the way artists think about sound. I'm Zakia Sewell, and in this episode, I'll be talking to the vocalist, producer, and musician, Kobi Say. Hey, Kobi, how's it going? How are you? How are you today? Yeah, good. I managed to get here just about amidst the strikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the founders of London's Carl Collective, alongside Mikalevi, Terza, and Brother May, Say takes a DIY approach, moving seamlessly between live instrumentation and production, referencing grime, jazz, post-punk, dub, R&B and club music. I guess with with everyone that I've been speaking to, it's always fascinating to sort of go back to the very first encounters with music. And so what were the what were the first things that really spoke to you artistically and and why did they resonate? For me, Prince. Like I really got into the Batman soundtrack. I'm not sure when exactly, but I remember listening to it when I was like four or five and I I rinsed that CD. And I think, like, I definitely credit that particular record for providing me context for different sounds and different kinds of music that uh, I otherwise might not have understood Mm. until, like my teens or something, or late teens. Can you tell me about that? that I, I've not heard the, the soundtrack, but what, what's it like sonically and what was it as a four-year-old that really kind of captured you? The opening track on there is a song called The Future and that song is so like... You could imagine that being heard in like somewhere like Burkine or Corsica Studios or something, like now, you know, at like 3am. And to hear that and to hear the sort of ominous like quality to it, only to be followed um, by another track, which was just like heavy sort of heavy rock sort of ballady sound and stuff. It's like all over the place in a good way, and it all made sense. And I used to, I used to play that all the time. Mm. Yeah, it's, I'm yeah. just imagining like yeah. the young you just sat, sat there, you know. And when yeah. we are, I, I I have a similar thing with a very early Khalees album that I just used to listen to oh, when man. I was when I was a little a nipper. But yeah. just listening in private in a bedroom, you don't really understand what it's about. But there's yeah. just something that's sort yeah. of calling out to you. What other sounds did you grow up with that were really influential? Pretty much all of the artists on the Space Jam soundtrack. Jay-Z was on there, uh, Monica, Barry White and Chris Rock, um, which actually brings me to a tape that I got um, with me, a cassette tape, because uh, it was one of the songs that I pretend DJed as a kid uh, with my younger brother, who was, who was like six years younger than me. Um, during the summertime, uh, I used to pretend to be a radio DJ, uh, I don't know what inspired me to do it, but it's probably because I listened to the radio a lot as a kid. So what this? So this is a you brought with you for, for listeners who can't see it. A, quite a, a hefty piece of equipment. Yeah. And this is a tape that you recorded when you were how old? I can't remember the exact date. I'd say I can't. I, I think I was eleven or twelve. I think it was like in nineteen ninety nine. I'm giving my age away. But yeah, <laughs> nineteen ninety nine or two thousand or something. Yeah. Well, and so this is the this is the young Cobby unreleased tapes, unreleased demos. Yeah, okay. <laughs> go on. Let's let's have a listen. All right. And we've also got another surprise as well. There's going to be a new DJ coming as well. His name is DJ Thompson. Give him a big round of applause. Yeah! 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 
to be a new DJ. And why do you want to become a new DJ? Because I love music very much. And okay. what is your favourite music? Lily Kravitz. And is there any other music you would like? Any sort of like a classic sort of music? Yep. What is it? Space Bear. What number track? Number 10. The real Chris Rock. Okay. In fact, I've got the CD right here. Would you want me to play the music? Yes. Okay. Barry White and Chris Rock. Basketball Jones coming right up. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! You're a nat- you're a natural radio presenter. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find that person, man. I'm like, I, he sort of appears when I perform again, and I'm like, okay, I can perform in front, but I don't know. Yeah. Oh, you can, my, you can just hear you can just hear the the love and the excitement. Of, yeah. Is that your little brother? Yeah, yeah, Benjamin. If he heard this, he's not going to be. Happy. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, so from from that tape, I mean, you're hearing it's a kind of it's a family it's a family affair, right? So did you grow up in a musical household? I know you know I know that your brother is has also been really influential on you and a big influence. So tell me a little bit about that sort of that family connection to music. I mean, my parents, especially my dad, uh, he he'd collect records. I mean, he was he was big on buying a lot of vinyl, and he was very early into buying music on CD. Um, and my mum was a she. She grew up as a lovers rock fanatic, which was the thing in South East London. Like lovers rock was synonymous to it. Um, but no one, until Quez, to my knowledge, you know, decided to take music fully as you know as a career. I mean, my my maternal granddad did like tuba when he was young in, in Ghana, but he didn't like he didn't pursue it as a career. I don't know. I guess it's within like the sort of immigrant narrative like migrant narrative like to, to take music as a career is like oh mm. you sure about that like surely you know like no like it's better to be a doctor lawyer engineer blah 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 mm-hmm. kind of thing so yeah i don't know we just kind of in the <laughs> rebellious in our, in our own kind of way but but at the same time my maternal grandparents did buy loads of instruments to keep us occupied around the house and to keep us occupied from like just distractions going on you know like growing up in Lewisham and stuff so it was, it was one of those things that was kind of like well of course it would happen I mean you got all these keyboards around you got you got these acoustic guitars around we're gonna like pick it up <laughs> like so don't yeah. be surprised when I say I don't want to be a lawyer <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah so but they're, they're super supportive and they, they see us making it happen it's like whoa you know so tell me about your first moment that you've kind of picked out as being particularly pivotal or influential, the moment that your brother, Quez, explained the idea of perfect pitch to you? Yeah, uh, I don't know, it might have been like during our early times at secondary school, but um, I I, I immediately understood it because it's like, oh, okay, I know what... I don't even know whether it was a case of him explaining it or whether I sort of kind of knew because by that point, just from like playing around like keyboards and stuff, I knew what this key, a key C or a D or E would sound like. But it was... The thing that Quest explained to me more so was um, colour to sound synesthesia. And when he explained that to me, then it's like it was like an affirmation because I was like, oh, I think I have that. You know, where certain keys would equate to certain colours. Like C would always like equate to red for me. 
whereas for queers it equates to blue. Uh, for me, E equates to blue. D equates to crimson. Well, and so you well, yeah. you, you see this when you hear, you hear. Yeah, it's not it's not like overwhelming, but I don't know. It just shows up sort of in the background, kind of thing. So this kind of extra sensory element to to your experience of music, do you feel that that informs and has shaped the way that you then make make music, make your own music? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So tapes, you know, so you were experimenting with with tapes and with recording, and you know, from a very young age, and is that something that sort of continued throughout your throughout your musical yeah, career? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I didn't even know that I was doing this, but I. Uh, I made what's known as pause tapes, uh, which involved playing, I don't know, like a like a drum section and and recording that, and then pausing it when just before the drum solo ends, and then rewinding the drum solo, and then pressing record the same time that the loop is played again, and then just creating like a long loop like like that. Um, it wasn't until like literally like 10 or 11 years ago I stumbled upon an interview with Q-Tip um, explaining that that's what he used to do, but with records on turntables. I was doing that with records on CDs. I started doing the same thing again with a Tascam Porter Sound 8-track, uh, which I used to have, and I'd create loops on there and also record um, music Around that time, like 2013, I got a bit frustrated with how I'd make so many tunes but not finish them. So I thought, okay, let me just try and do it as quickly as possible and then record it with tape. And I think that really helped That really helped me to sort of, I don't know, just try and just be a bit more, just know when I need to like speed things up and know when I need to take my time. So you've got another tape that you're going to share with us. Yeah. But you're not, this is not for, this, we're not going to hear a... A high-pitched, childlike hobby in this one? No. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, that, that, like I, I, yeah, those times were really, it was really like it really helped, and and just and just learning to own it as well, and just like, because for a while I was sort of like reticent about considering myself as a musician and artist, especially like with Quest as my older brother, because I, I I didn't want you know I, I got unnecessarily super conscious about like. People thinking, oh, you just, you know, you're just copying, just copying, you're copying your brother, right? I'm like, but I thought, you know what? I just thought, I just, I'm just gonna see it through. And you know, he's, he was super supportive, man. Like, so, yeah, 
Yeah. It's so nice hearing hearing you know hearing these tapes and just that the hiss and the crackle and you know there is a kind of DIY aesthetic that you hear in that very first tape of you you know in your your radio your kind of made up radio show that kind of runs through the work today and that there is always a kind of a looseness a kind of decay that's that's happening and do you think that we would say that is a kind of integral aspect of your of your of your sound? Oh, 100%. I'm hundred percent like a, you know, it's like a paradoxical thing, you know, like beauty and the decay and decay and the beauty, and so like that's for me that's 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 like a key a key thing with music, and not even just with tape, but also in terms of like vocals and performances, you know, like perfectly imperf- perfectly imperfect. So tell me about when you first started releasing your own music and maybe about your you know the second moment that you've chosen which was the release of of 10 stories. Yeah, it was just a quick it was just me just trying to work as quickly as possible and you know to sort of get me out of the loop no pun intended of working on songs that I'd never finish. So I thought well maybe if I can concentrate on making some loops that would help me to finish things quickly and it did. And I did about 10 songs. Uh, One or two of them, I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll develop them into like like song songs. So one of them I developed developed into a song called Ticket, which ended up on the record that I released in 2017. the back of that I ended up not only releasing stuff under my own name but I also started playing shows with my 8-track cassette tape. I'd build loops on tapes and play them and then loop them and then I'd, I'd, I'd muck about with the with the pitch shifter as well. There's a pitch shifter on, on, like, on that machine. Sometimes I'd include like a really cheap guitar uh, which I bought off eBay when I was like 16 or 17. And to this day, I, st- I still use this guitar for terms of shows. It's like a like a kind of small trapezium-shaped blue guitar with two strings missing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, there was always two strings missing on that, even though we fi- I get it fixed. And the, 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 the title of the, of the release was Ten Stories, right? And that was a reference to like your environment to Lewisham, which is sort of something that's continued, as you said, with the Transport for Lewisham release. Would you say that, you know, that, that sort of that environment that you grew up in is also part of your kind of, you know, your sonic influence? Oh, yeah, 100%. Both in terms of its history and in terms of just the, the actual environment, the sounds within that environment and its proximity to 
everywhere else in London. Because with Lewisham, it's like it's it's it is connected and it is in in a London or Greater London zone too. It's also kind of green in terms of like you know there's more trees there. You know you've got Blackheath, you've got a Lady Well, you've got like Grove Park. So it's connected, but it, it's not connected. It's also it's like a it's almost like a haven in itself. Like and that all seeped into my music. What does Lewisham sound like? Oh, mate, it sounds like dusty sort of train tracks. sounds like rustling leaves that have been brushed on by, like, pigeons and stuff. It sounds like market tellers, you know, like selling fruit for a pound. It it sounds like, you know, youths after school hanging around the chicken shops. It sounds like the church bell that you hear from afar. I mean, it sounds like the the DLR notifications when the next stop, you know, where the next stop's going to be. Yeah. All sounds which, knowing your music and knowing the sound of your music, I can almost hear the echoes of yeah. of, 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 of Lewisham and all the, all the things you've described. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's fast forward to 2016, when you started Curl Collective. So. A collective that includes Mikalevi, Taza, Brother May, Quez. It's a real family affair, or that's how it kind of seems from the outside. Why did you set it up, and and what does it what does it mean to you? Oh man, it was just, it was just a way for us to just like make things happen, and it was also a way to, for me to sort of continue what Quez and Mika and all the others started. I mean, I mean, it was something that I was thinking about anyway because I wanted to. I was doing like internships and stuff and labels and like uh, May and Mika worked on an EP together and they were looking for somewhere to release it. I thought, yeah, I'm thinking of setting something up. Would you be up for like releasing it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I thought, well, let's make it a partnership kind of thing. I think I was reading somewhere that the, the idea that this is like, you know, genius comes from a collective or that it's, there's a kind of, it's not just about individuals and their pursuits. It's actually the idea of what happens when we all come together and sort of an acknowledgement of the collaboration, even behind artists that look like maybe they're just a, a standalone artist by themselves. It's always a collaboration, always. Yeah, and that quote, I think, I don't know if Brian Eno was a person who said that quote. I mean, I've definitely seen a video where he mentions it, but... I think it's seniors, right? Is that the mm. word? Yeah, seniors, yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, all the artists we know and love who are considered solo, and they, they have a team. 
Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's good that there's more awareness of that. As much as there are merits in being able to find ways to be like DIY, um, there's also collaboration within that DIY as well. We maybe we need to go from to DI, DIT, do it together. Yeah, DIT. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good one. <laughs> so your the the final moment that you've selected is a big one. It's making the shift from a performer to a composer. So. Tell me about your work with the uh, with the LCO, and maybe we can hear a little bit of it too. So, my first encounter or collaboration with LCO, I mean, dates back to two thousand and eighteen. A friend of mine named Hannah Perry is a visual artist, and she enlisted myself and Mika to work with her to create a piece. And she also enlisted the LCO, so we all got together, workshops and stuff. Uh, with Robert Ames and Oliver Coates, Rick Ellsworth. And then fast forward to 2021, after the show at King's Place, uh, Robert Farhat got in contact about, you know, maybe doing that show with LCO. I was like, hell, I was like, hell yeah. So, uh, yeah. I also mentioned to Rob that I'd like to work specifically with two percussionists and two string players. But I was, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised to see the, those two percussion players also bring loads of found sound. Mm. Seeing that and witnessing that, I was like, that's amazing. It's like, tele, it's like telepathy or something because, you know, with a lot of my work, I deal with a lot of found sound. You know, for me, it's like super key to record like stuff. Atmosphere is like a big thing for me. And how did it feel to hear your your music, your compositions in that very, very different atmosphere? It's you know, it's an orchestra, it's a different audience. How, yeah, how did that? How did that feel? I mean, I was I was blown away. Um, also, realizing hindsight that my music lent itself to that sort of space in between, where it is kind of there are moments of stuff that's considered electronic and stuff that's considered more acoustic, because that's pretty much what I've been. A, attempting to do within the confinements of my equipment um there's also affirmation it was, it was it was affirmation like it was amazing so tell me what's what's next for Cobby what have you got lined up you've got a debut album on the cards am yeah. I right yeah. yeah I got Conduit I started working on it in 2017 but it didn't take me five years I, there was a lot of like starts and stops I worked a full-time job. I had to work a full-time job to make ends meet as a web developer. And whilst I was doing that, I was using my holiday days to go on tour. But I was still chipping away, just like slowly but surely. It wasn't until like autumn time 2019 that I used up all my holiday dates. So I didn't really have any choice but to like quit the job at that time. And um, yeah, with this album, I just I just thought I'd... Uh, be a bit more forefront with my vocals and with things that I sort of talk about within those songs as well. There's not really much singing on this album. That might that might happen with the next one. There are, there's a lot of my vocals, but I'm not singing. I'm sort of vocalising the track, chatting, like emceeing in my own kind of way, kind of thing. Well, I know, because I remember seeing you play... Um, last year and like was really surprised to hear like a your beautiful like R&B style like really high pitch amazing voice so maybe that maybe you can do your R&B cut up chopped and screwed R&B uh, one next yeah may- maybe <laughs> watch this space yeah, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to, I look forward to, to to what comes next thank you 
I'm Zakia Sewell, and you've been listening to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw. This episode was recorded in person with the SM7B microphone.